Jonathan. Welcome to Mormon Book Reviews, where an evangelical encounters the restoration. So I've got a very exciting uh, episode here because we're kind of going to break some news, if you will, kind of uh, some new ground that hasn't been uh, covered before. So I'm very excited about it. But before I get to that, I just wanted to say um, my channel is very close to getting monetized. Um, I've actually exceeded levels uh, that would qualify me for monetization. Only about 10% of YouTube channels get monetized and I'm very close. So if you're not a subscriber, I ask that you subscribe because I'm very close, this close to get getting monetized. So I just want to remind you, if you're liking my show, please subscribe and just set up the YouTube account. It takes two seconds and, and do that. And I also want to thank all my current subscribers and viewers as well. So I have a special guest on today. Uh, Devin Jensen from uh, BYU. Welcome to the program. Thank you. It's great to be with you. So I'm just gonna read a little bio on uh, Devin. Um, he, uh, there we go. Um, tell you a little bit about him. Uh, uh, Jensen, David, Devin Jensen is the executive editor at the Religious Studies Center at Brigham Young University. He has edited about 250 book length projects, which garnered many awards. He has served on the editorial board of the Journal of Mormon History and as an editor for Ensign Magazine, Church Publishing Services Department, and Deseret Book Company. As a National Mayor of Scholar, he received his BA, cum laude, and MA degrees in English from BYU and has published five books and about 50 articles. He is compiling a book on church members in Micronesia, emerging from his missionary service in Guam and uh, Pompeii. Is that? Yes, Pompeii. Pompeii. Okay. And uh, by the way, folks, if you want to hear a little bit about that, actually watch the Gospel Tangents episode where he, you kind of talk a little bit about that. So uh, look up uh, De Devin, Devin Jensen on Gospel Tangents. So Devin, before we get into this uh, exciting breaking news story, I'd like for us to maybe just go back a little bit and tell me a little bit about your background, uh, your story, and how, we end how you ended up where you're at. Oh, fantastic. Thanks for asking. Well, you just mentioned Micronesia, and so that's a topic near and dear to my heart. So I was a missionary in Micronesia, and on the little island of Ponpei, or Ponpei, as the people of Ponpei would say, and um, it, Guam was kind of the mission headquarters, and out there um, on Ponpei, they get 12 to 18 inches of rain per year. So you can just imagine the deluge of rain they get. I mean, it it puts Florida to shame. Uh, so, um, and it, um, the people out there were so nice to me. They would just feed me food, and I I loved it. So I decided I really want to write a book about my missionary experiences, but not just about my missionary experiences. Talk about World War II. What brought Latter Day Saints there? Um, talk about how um, they used to use um, some of the the shell casings from their, their um, uh, you know, firing, they used to use them as, as sacrament cups. And I thought that was kind of a cool story. They built a, a little meeting house on Saipan um, and used it. An Idaho farm boy was the one who kind of designed it because he, he had built a barn before. So he said, I could build a meeting house out of the scrap pieces. They used it for one day and then they were transferred off the island you know, with the military. So there's some really amazing stories out there um, in Micronesia. And so that's a, that's a short uh, little plug, uh, if you will. That'll be hopefully coming out next year um, from the Religious Studies Center if, if it all passes peer review, we hope. Um, anyway. Hopefully that's helpful. Then as far as um, my background, I worked for the, uh, I, I got interested in editing. I didn't realize there was a, a job for people who could, who could read professionally. I thought, oh, this is heaven because I grew up in Idaho and we spent a lot of time um, just reading it. I'd, I'd write on the, uh, read in the school bus 
and read all, all the time. And so when I found out that, that there were people who could actually read history and read articles and refine things and help the grammar and the communication, I said, I'm all in. And so I started working for the church uh, in their, um, at the church magazines. Uh, I also worked for Desert Book. Um, I, I suppose I, I worked as an intern first for the church, then I went over to Desert Book, um, got involved in, with the Encyclopedia of Mormonism, some of those reprints and so forth. Um, so kind of got an overview of church doctrine and, and history and everything. And then when I worked for church magazines, uh, I, I got really immersed in, in the whole correlation process and the doctrinal review and the historical review. And so we did some really, really fun articles in the almost six years I was there. So that's a little bit about my early history. What, what else do you want to know? You want to know about my time at BYU, how, how I arrived yeah, at BYU? Talk a little bit about that. Yeah. Okay, fantastic. So uh, about uh, six years in, I said, you know, I'm ready for a new challenge. I mean, I, I understand the magazine process, but I'm really ready for a, a, a career change. So uh, I contacted two or three of my friends and they said, why don't you contact BYU Religious uh, Study Center because I think they're looking for an editor right now. So I talked with Kent Jackson, who's well known in the in the world for you know King James uh, and, and King James Version and the Joseph Smith translation, how those correlate. And so he was the one who who I talked to with on the phone and he said, you had a, we were looking for somebody with really good book uh, editing experience and really good magazine editing experience. And I said, I'm your guy. So um, it, it did take a few months to because there were a lot of talented uh, candidates in that process, but I eventually got the job offer. And uh, I've been here for, for just over 20 years now. Uh, as, as you said, I've edited, you know, over 250 book length projects that include some of our journals and, and, and magazines and, and books. Uh, but it has been a fun, exciting, sometimes frustrating process because there are so many books and, and magazines to, to generate. It seems like they all want to be done right now. But it, that's that's a little bit about my background and how I arrived here. I will also add here, this is, a, this is an important connection. I got involved in the Mormon History Association as a result of my BYU connection. Now, BYU uh, Religious Education and the Mormon History Association have had ups and downs. I'd say right now we're in an up cycle where we're all getting along really well. There are times when, um, as, as my friend Dick Bennett who used to be the president, you say there are people on my right, there are people on my left, and then BYU's somewhere in the middle, uh, you know, there. And, and what, what he's acknowledging is that there are all these strands of, um, from super academic to su super faithful, devotional, and maybe everything in between, um, and so, so uh, basically, we're, what we're acknowledging is that that, that we fit, we're, we're situated somewhere in this process of of history, where where you're trying to, you're everybody's trying to produce good work, but the more um, primary sources and uh, balanced approaches you you provide, um, uh, that is going to be considered or perceived as better history. And so uh, you, you can see that with the recent uh, emphasis from the church as well, with the Joseph Smith papers, they're trying to do really good uh, primary research. And that's, that's the sort of thing I love, but I kind of fell into the history side of things. Of course, as an English major, I was interested in history, but this is something that's become a real passion. So that's actually where we met was at the Mormon History Association. True. And uh, Barbara Brown, by the way, she just uh, 
just the other day uh, stepped down because she's going to be taking over as uh, head of Signature Books. And I'm going to be having Barbara Brown on to talk about her vision for Signature Books. And I'm excited about that. Love and it. I would just add, Barbara and I have known each other for probably 25 to maybe 30 years. We started at Desert Book, believe it or not. We wow. both went to the church and we both have been very involved in Mormon History Association. And so we've known each other a long time and I'm very excited for the direction she's going to help uh, with signature books. They, are, they already do really good work, but she's going to take it, uh, I think, uh, increase the outreach and the diversity, I believe, and, and then continue the groundbreaking stuff that they do. So I just wanted to show on the screen here a couple of books that literally just got in the mail like 15 minutes before uh, we did this. And um, these are a couple of books that you've edited. I just, as because this is a book review channel, let's talk about what does it take to edit a book? Uh, a book? How oh, much fantastic. time do you put in a book and all that kind of stuff? Yeah, fantastic. Thank you. So um, I, I will add that uh, this is something that a lot of people don't think about, but it, a lot of the, in particular, those two books were very much shaped by the peer review process. So when we have blind peer review, some um, an author will submit a manuscript and say, um, I've done my best I've to, to make sure that everything is um, in good order, but I'm interested in your feedback. And so we'll send those out to, to uh, without uh, identifying the author or authors in, in, in the second case of the Church History Symposium, we will send those out to, the, to people who can refine it, um, challenge it, um, sometimes reject articles. Um, and, and basically that's the first step is to really get good re peer review from the, from the very beginning. Um, once that, that, that has cleared, that's usually when I get things, sometimes I'm involved in the committee side of things. And so I get an early sneak peek, but, but that's when our team takes over and we, we go through with, uh, a full-time editor and a, a student intern usually to check the sources. And we will, we will look at that very carefully, scrutinize that, make sure that the grammar, uh, history, uh, names um, seem to be in order. And then we will, um, once we feel like we've got a really good edit, we've cleared that with the author, they feel good about it. We will send it off to the typesetter. We'll put in pictures. And uh, in the case of uh, John Gee's introduction to the, the, the book of Abraham, um, he actually had several of our students read it and say, what other questions do you have? And so he wrote, he rewrote several chapters based on their uh, feedback. So that's a little sneak peek of what the book industry looks like. And it's really fun and it's really challenging. I mean, you're, you're juggling a lot of projects at once. Uh, sometimes, you know, five or six um, books or magazines uh, with multiple chapters. Interesting. So, uh, you know, before we get into our topic, uh, I want, I just wanted you to touch base on a couple of things we talked about off camera, and that was that you guys are um, going to be um, start releasing this series, uh, not the, the Brigham Young papers, but the Brigham Young journals. Yes. And maybe just talk about, preview that a little bit. Oh, fantastic. So uh, we are told, sorry, no problem. my volume here. Um, we are <laughs> we are told that um, um, Ron Esplin, who helped with the Joseph Smith papers, and um, uh, Dean Jesse, who also was a very major contributor to the Joseph Smith papers, um, will be submitting a manuscript in the next few weeks, perhaps even uh, this week. You know, um, that's how close we are. And this involves people like uh, Andrew Hedges and Garrick Dirkmott and others. Who, um, who were all 
uh, part of the Joseph Smith Papers team. And so this is going to be the Brigham Young Journals, Volume 1. And it is going to be a multi-volume multi set. Uh, and these are selections from his, his office journals and contextualized with notes, historical detail. It'll be very helpful, um, groundbreaking information on Brigham Young to help us understand uh, the territorial situation he was in as governor. It'll help understand the day-to-day -day, uh, church responsibilities that he had, and also his role as an Indian interpreter. Those are three major roles that he had. Uh, unusual to have one person with those three overlapping roles, but, uh, but th these will be fantastic resources. Uh, I, I believe Brent Rogers is involved in that as well. So we're happy to see those, uh, those materials come in. Well, I just want to, you know, just just so the audience knows, you know, I've, I've established a very good relationship with BYU Press uh, through you, Devin, especially. And I think I've gotten probably four or five books from y'all. And, uh, you know, I, it's a real privilege to be uh, someone who's able to get this access to this kind of stuff. And speaking of access, um, one of the reasons uh, we're having this conversation, and we actually kind of just stumbled on this, is we are kind of having our pre-interview interview. And that's why, folks, I like to do these pre-interview interviews, is you just never know what you're going to come across. And literally, uh, because we just, we were, our park, we just literally had our roads repaved. So for three days, we didn't get any mail, but I, I took the initiative. My mom's the HOA president, and I opened up a section so that the mail truck could finally get through. And she, I walked over to the mailbox, and she said, well, I got a bunch of packages for you. And uh, so I got a bunch of packages today. But one of them was sent by you, including the two books I got today. But then the separate one was this particular, uh, uh, I want to share this with the audience. This is a journal, um, Pioneer Journal. And it's, uh, excuse the green screen. And it's an interesting picture where you see uh, Moroni and Mormon uh, 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 getting hiding the plates and we were having just a conversation about this and the reason why we were talking about it partly was my friend Christopher Thomas who wrote a Pentecostal reads the Book of Mormon and then, um, he identified an important art piece uh, by David Hiram and uh, identified it as possibly the earliest extant <clears throat> painting of a Book of Mormon story and he identified it to be around circa <clears throat> excuse me 1873 1874 well, why don't you just tell us a little bit about what we would call panoramas or artwork that yeah. you, you didn't discover it. Talk about who did and then talk yes. about where you took it from there. I will. And I, I'm glad you, you asked the question about panoramas because panoramas were a huge thing in St. Louis, Missouri around the, the time of the restoration. And uh, essentially what they would do is they would create a room uh, with art that was beautiful. And you could either walk around the room or look in, at these room-sized paintings and say, oh, this is great. Um, you know, if you've been to Gettysburg, they have a cyclorama, kind of similar thing where you're going, you're looking around, you're going, oh, here's a scene, here's a scene, here's a scene. And um, that it's the same kind of concept where, where before we had motion pictures, we, we used to have art and they would narrate uh, a lot of times. And so um, as a result of some research that I did on Philo Dibble, who had, who had, who had created uh, an early panorama, William Major is uh, one of the artists who, who painted uh, Joseph uh, Smith and the Nauvoo Legion. Um, and, and so that's one of those art pieces that was part of the panorama. And so as a result of this, I was contacted by Stephen Olson, who um, worked for the church history department as the, as the director. And he contacted me and said, Devin, why don't you take a look at this panorama we have uh, that uh, was used to teach the American Indians? And I said, well, 
that sounds interesting. I'd love to look at it. Uh, tell me a little bit more about it. Well, he said it was painted by CCA Christensen. Now I'm really interested in it because I'm I'm interested in his, him as an artist. And uh, so I said, okay, that's great. So so if you don't mind, can I show share my screen with you? Yeah. So let's. Uh, so I first of all. Uh, so basically, just for these panoramas. Uh, so would they like? like would they be like a traveling exhibit and then people would like get in line and they pay to go and see it exactly exactly some of them were stationary and they would they you know if they were really big they would have to kind of build a house for it and, and it would be an existing but a lot of them were ticketed traveling uh panoramas in fact if you know anything about the cca christensen mormon panorama those were very large it was 175 feet tall wow and so basically they would have to roll these paintings, oh. um, they would build up a tripod system and they would kind of roll and they were traveling. They were very portable, very heavy, uh, you know, it's because it's on linen and it's, and it's got paint on linen, but they would, they would carry these around and show people um, these images and, and charge admission. And they would sometimes have music with them. And so uh, if you, if you could think of a slideshow, that would probably be in the same genre, if okay. you will, or, uh, you know, or a, a, an early motion picture. Um, same genre, you know, you're, you're trying to tell a story, you're trying to create a mood so that people would say, okay, I'm very interested in learning more. Um, a lot of these are Western history, the U.S., the settling of the West. Um, some of them were, you know, um, let's see, Civil War uh, scenes as well. So they, anything that was uh, of enough import that other people would want to know more about it. Very interesting. So, yeah, why don't you uh, start the slideshow? Maybe we'll start discussing these paintings, uh, these images, and then we can talk about the significance of the find we yeah. think that was made. That sounds great. And uh, I'll just, uh, okay, so I'm going to go right here and then gonna make sure that you can see this as well. So, okay, oh. all this is coming up. And we'll get this all taken care of, folks. So, first of all, I just want to thank again BYU Press for everything that you guys have done. And Devin's getting this all set up. Uh, also, uh, don't forget to subscribe to our podcast, which is now on Apple and all the other major streaming platforms. So here we are. Um, Great. Okay. So Devin, okay. Uh, let's talk about these paintings. Uh, what am I looking at right now? Okay, fantastic. Okay, so this is a scene. This We were just talking about how early these are. Okay, so uh, one thing I'm grateful that Steve pointed out as, as in our conversation is I knew that 1871 was early, but I didn't realize these may be either the earliest or within a year or two of the earliest scenes uh, showing Book of Mormon art that are still in existence. Um, and so this scene right here is Lehi and his family, Lehi, Sariah, and their family leaving Jerusalem. Right here in the front here uh, on the on on my right with the blue sash is, is um, uh, Nephi. Um, and you can see he's got a sword and he's got his bow. Um, so these are depictions. Now, what's interesting about these scenes is that you have in the background, you have Jerusalem, the walls of Jerusalem, and you have them leaving the city. And then I, I don't know if this is, it is um, it's just quirky. Look at the shoes that they're wearing. Um, and, and these are very European looking people. Um, and you see, they've got a dog. So, so you've got, C.C.A. Christensen trying to portray what he sees as this Book of Mormon scene that's really important. Now, I'll, I'll add here that this was one of the scenes that was used to teach 
Native Americans, the Shoshone, Ute, and Paiute people um, in, a, in a way that would be universal, hopefully the images, rather than their particular language. We did have people speaking the languages, but of course it's a big language barrier. And um, these scenes were commissioned by a, an Indian, Indian interpreter named Dimmick Huntington. Um, he knew the, the, the prophet Joseph Smith really well. Uh, Joseph told him he had a vision for him to be uh, a very key part of uh, the conversion of what he called the Lamanites from Book of Mormon um, terms. And he wanted him to, to be this lifelong missionary. And Dimmick did. He, 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 when he moved to Utah with the Saints, he, I, after serving in the Mormon battalion, he picked, picked up Indian languages. He picked up Shoshone um, and Ute, what we call the Numic languages, and Paiute, and uh, their, their related languages. And so he was able to converse, but he asked, he asked CCA Christensen, would you paint me something that starts with the creation of the world, talks us through the Book of Mormon times, and connects us with the Bible and Christ's crucifixion and the baptism of Christ, and then takes us up through the receiving the golden plates from the angel Moroni. So why don't we why don't we show us some of those images? To, great. Let's start telling the story because this looks great. oh this is great I love this yeah and oh, I'm going to just show you this is I'm now now that we've kind of given you the overview look at how cool this is how how this looks um, when it's rolled out on a table this is at the church history museum and we have our experts there with gloves and and Laura um, Hurtado there in the front foreground and they're looking through this and. Um, so we have a little bit of an art mystery, if you will. Um, this is what Stephen Olson engaged me with. He said, we want to understand a little bit more the origins and the use and the provenance of this. Um, and so he shared some documents. And so, so those were tremendously helpful to get me started. And, that, and that's, that's what we were studying. So at the bottom of this, you see on the left, uh, at least on my screen, um, this was donated by Virginia Hill Buse Hipwell. And so... Uh, what happened is um, Marlon K. Jensen is, it was, a, was a general authority 70, was our church historian and recorder, and he was contacted by Virginia, who was a classmate um, while they were planning their 50-year high school reunion, and said, I have this painting of, uh, that CCA Christensen did. Would you like to see it? Okay, that's an easy sell. Of course he wanted to see this. And What's interesting about this is all the other panoramas that we have, this is 22 feet long, um, are all carved up. So they would, they would, they would basically, for convenience, you know, cut, cut it, cut it uh, off at each scene and then storm. Like that's how they are at the Museum of Art uh, at BYU, um, his other panorama. So this is the only extant um, 19th century panorama that we have, you know. Wow. In, in, and so, so that's another reason this is really rare. And so Steve Olson, when he heard about this um, through Elder Jensen said, we have got to acquire this. We've got to see if we can come up with the funds. And then it was through a third party donated to them so that they could just give, give this to the church. So it was, kind of a, it was kind, of, kind of a donation, kind of a paid thing. But as a result of this, they, they began to look at this. And what's, what's interesting about this is her grandma, had this for 60 years. She inherited this from her father, whose name is George Washington Hill. We'll get to him in a moment. 
but he was one of the other Indians, uh, Indian missionaries uh, or interpreters that would would use this to teach to teach people the gospel. So so we're going to talk a little bit about this story about how this came to be, and I'll just kind of just touch some high points. Dimick, here's a picture of him about the same time he would have commissioned this, um, 1866. And he, and he asked CCA Christensen, and we're pretty sure he also reached out to Dan Wegeland, who was a, who was a Norwegian convert uh, to the church and did a lot of painting. CCA Christensen and Dan uh, Wegeland painted a lot of the murals that exist in the, the temples, the Utah era temples. So um, one thing about CCA that is really cool that I love about him is when he painted the creation room, um, which is depicting kind of the Garden of Eden and all that sort of thing. He painted a pterodactyl. I love that. And that is really cool because that was part of Utah history. And so and that, was, said, that was in the uh, Salt Lake Temple, correct? That was in the Manti Temple. That oh, Manti. Okay, great. Yeah, Thank you. Yeah. And I think it's great. In fact, um, you may be aware of this, but those murals were almost destroyed yes. when they were remodeling the Manti Temple. There was a, a large uh, public outcry shortly thereafter there was an announcement that you know they're going to build another temple and they wouldn't take those murals down um but that that was a that was an interesting discussion so that's a little bit about cca christians and and wegland helped him with that so so these that's a little bit about those two so we're pretty sure that that um wegland helped with this painting with this painting we're we'll get to that in a moment this i just wanted to share as just a little context right this is a painting by my friend uh rick kennington and the Bear River Massacre and other events um, in Utah in the 1860s and 1850s, um, even early 1870s, were a big part of the cultural context of um, the pioneers, if you will, colonizing areas that the Shoshone and Ute and Paiute people were in a very delicate balance with, with nature. And so when the uh, when the pioneers came in, it created intense conflict. So this is the U.S. This is a painting of the U.S. Army coming in and um, the and and creating the largest massacre of Indians that happened in U.S. history, the largest single day. And so um, that happened in my home area of Preston, Idaho. So I just want to share that. That's a little bit of the context for the complex situation that was happening. The Shoshone and Ute people were feeling pressured to go to reservations. And so at that time, they, um, uh, Dimmick Huntington said, I really want to create something that will be helpful for them to help them understand the church. And he wanted them to take up a more farming lifestyle rather than a nomadic, um, you know, live off the land, travel up and down the Bear River kind of lifestyle. So here's the, the, the back of the panorama. You can see CCA Christensen painter Ephraim Misfeld, and also uh, San Pete. Um, so uh, also on the back, and you can't see it in this scene, it, there's a little um, date on, on one side, and it says, we're pretty sure, we've looked at this very carefully with the, micro, with the you know, magnifying glass and everything, that it says October, well, 10, 1871. Wow. Um, we, we can for sure read the 10, we can read the 1870, we think it's one. I'll tell you why I think that's uh, why I'm pretty sure that's right, because we know that um, from journal entries of Frederick Kessler, that it was this exact 
panorama was used to teach the Indians, the, the Utes uh, primarily, but also Shoshone as well um, in Salt Lake City in 1875. So we know it's not 1877 and it definitely looks like 1871. Um, the church felt comfortable saying for sure 1871, perhaps as late as 1875, but no later than 1875. So that gives you a very specific range of years that we think this was done. And we're pretty, I'm pretty sure it's 1871 because that's what the date looks like on the back. So, and it's just so interesting because, you know, we talked the other day and I was like, dude, I think you stumbled upon the oldest extant piece of a Book of Mormon story. And I'm glad I was able to help make that contribution. Exactly. And you're, and you're a big part of this. I'm grateful that you're telling this story. I mean, this, uh, it's a really cool story. So here's the first scene, right? The oh, top of the list. This is Adam and Eve in the garden. And what's interesting about this is, is this is kind of a, you can also imagine a North American setting for this. You could, you've got bears and rabbits and, and uh, hens and, you know, and, and so I, when I look at this, I think he may have had Missouri yeah. in mind, you know, as much as anything else. Um, and they're, they are very European looking. I mean, he's the Scandinavian. He's got surrounded by Scandinavians. He's got lots of British converts. So I think it's pretty normal for us to look for models in our area. Um, Eve is talking to the serpent, giving the, the fruit to Adam. Um, let's see, what else would you say about this painting? I mean, what, what questions do you have? It's, it's well, just, it's obvious, uh, you know, when I, the first time I saw this painting and I didn't think in the context of LDS, but I'm like, oh, it's nice to see them actually show some nudity in this painting. And I right. thought that's interesting. Yes, absolutely. And, um, you know, uh, as somebody said, uh, we're, uh, this is, I hope this is okay to say, uh, one of the reasons it's not displayed now is because there's reticence to show uh, female nudity, but but one of the uh, curators, past curators of the museum said, well, we all kind of started there <laughs> with, with suckling at our mother's breast, you know, you'd think that we'd be okay, but that's a conversation for another day. <laughs> yeah. But anyway, that's, that's, I believe, one of the reasons that we're, we're storing this piece and haven't, haven't, uh, shown it to other people and you know I, I hope I'm not upsetting our, our art people out there but I'm just saying that eventually the day will come but yes. right now it's not yet wow okay well, let's jump on to the next the next scene okay so we have Cain and Abel and you can see Cain has killed Abel and he's running away looking kind of guilty um, and uh, I think Laura um, Hurtado who's who was the curator uh, uh, or a curator at the museum had a very good comment. She said, if you're talking about the settler and Indian relations, you know, to talk about brothers killing each other would be an interesting scene because you're trying to say, well, look what this led to. We're killing each other. Let's not kill each other. So you, there's obviously some uh, important buy-in on these concepts that we're, we're trying to share. Let, can, we get, can we get along? Yeah, well, that's that's uh, that's a good that's an interesting image. Now I like this one. Talk talk about Noah's flood. Yeah, so Noah's flood. So this is an interesting image. You can see if you can see enough detail, you can see people on top of the ark there, um, very very small there. But then also if you look in the foreground, you can see bodies floating in there, and you can see uh, animals uh, there, you know, eating the car, you know, carnage of something, you know, and so, so it's a little bit different, um, uh, view of the flood than you often see those mountains look like they definitely could be Utah mountains of Washash front. Um, and you can see the rainbow suggesting the, 
um, the, the symbol of God's covenant with, with his people. And so I think this is, there's a lot of interesting things going on there. What, what questions do you have, Steve, or comments? Well, you know, uh, what struck me when I saw the painting for the first time when you sent it to me was how um, modern the ark looks. And when I say that, um, it, it looks like we're going to create a real boat that would survive a flood. This is something that Answers in Genesis and other young earth creationists over the last few decades of trying to come up with a model of the ark that would be more feasible to fit the animals. And I look at this painting and it just seems so unique. It doesn't have like the children's version of Noah's Ark, but it, it right. seems to be like, this is real history. This was yeah. a real boat and this is what happened. Yeah, huge and a huge. And a lot of people have said um, of CCA Christensen that he was not so much a painter. He was a, he was a definitely a, a, a qualified painter, but more of a primitive artist but he was really a historian. He really yeah. wanted to show things the way he thought they were. And so that represents a lot of the way he presents his art. And the floating bodies, that's very unusual. Yes, absolutely. Okay, here's this image we started with. This is Lehi and Sariah and family leaving Jerusalem. Um, you know, some uh, Laura commented that the fact that he has a sword may suggest that he's gonna end up with the sword of Laban. You know, of course, in the scriptural mm. story, he doesn't have the sword of Laban yet. He goes back to get that, but sort of a foreshadowing. Um, you've got the dog. You've got kind of the the uh, supplies that they're taking with them. So it's it's uh, it's pretty neat. You've got a very youthful Nephi compared to his uh, older brothers. Um, and I don't know what else. What else would you say about that? Uh, just uh, well, Joseph Smith didn't know if Jerusalem had walls. But we know right. in this painting it did. Uh, you know, it just always reminded of that. But right. also, yeah, very, uh, very European, obviously. But yeah, right, very European. Uh, no, hardly any women. You know, Lehi's yeah. daughters are not shown. So that's an interesting thing. Kind of just, oh yeah, forgot about them. <laughs> so, um, so then Nephi is tied to the mast. Um, this is, uh, of course, a Book of Mormon story where, where uh, they're frustrated. They feel like there's no hope. The boat looks pretty small in this picture. You notice, mm -hmm. uh, you know, there's just not a lot of room there um, for such a terrifying <laughs> long journey. You can see people in the background looking concerned, probably behind Soraya. Um, you can see the waves. So yeah, that's uh, that's a lot of a lot of stuff going on there. You know, I'm looking at as I look at this painting. Uh, what's I just noticed this that. You know, we're going to talk about the cross coming up, but I also think you could look at Nephi as a Christ-like character on a cross as, you, as he's bound to it. I just, I wonder if that was intentional. That's a really good observation because you can, you can definitely see some, uh, he's tied to a, a cross-shaped uh, figure and, and uh, CCA has apparently made the effort to turn that mask so that you can see that Christ uh, or that crucifix type shape. That's, that's a very interesting insight. I hadn't thought of that before. Interesting. Okay, here we have uh, arriving the promised land. Uh, you've got in the background uh, Jacob and Joseph, uh, some of the younger kids um, making their way. You've got Nephi uh, in the foreground offering a prayer and hands up stretch, which is a very Old Testament um, uh, motion. And you've got, um, let's see, what else have we got there? It's worth seeing. Why don't you comment? Oh, uh, Laura pointed out that you've got Lehi, Nephi, and Jacob, three of the, three of the first 
uh, prophets of Book of Mormon times. So. Oh, yeah. yeah. So, uh, first of all, it's interesting, you know, as I was reading the description in the magazine you sent me that it's kind of an, uh, reminiscent of a Garden of Eden look. Um, also looks to me like it's North America. Just yes. Look. Absolutely. And uh, yeah, Garden of Eden, North America, I think you're, 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 you're clued into some things that C.S. Christensen is doing. By the way, I, I would just add there that that's very common for us in all eras, like you think of the Dutch uh, masters to show Christ in a, you know, Netherlands setting or that sort of thing, mm -hmm. uh, surrounded by very Dutch looking people. Um, this is a very North American, uh, um, you know, here you are, welcome to America kind of setting with surrounded by Scandinavian or British people. Um, he's painting what he knows. I, I think that's just a, an acknowledgement. How, how do you paint other than what you know? Right. So, yeah, cool painting. Okay. Let's jump into the next one. Okay, this is where we're now bridging the uh, the continents and jumping over to uh, the old world. And you have the baptism of Jesus by John the Baptist. You've got the Holy Ghost appearing in the form of a dove in a pillar of light. Um, and so, um, so definitely reinforcing these very important, significant themes of the Bible and showing them the way of baptism that baptism by immersion that that is that they felt was very important to reinforce so that the the indians uh would feel like oh i want to follow my lord and savior in this uh, particular fashion so uh yeah very early baptism scene yeah I, I think it's very interesting and what makes it kind of unique is normally when in, when you see paintings of jesus being baptized he's usually standing up straight and then you have the holy spirit descending it's almost it, it appears to me that what he's trying to convey is that as soon as he comes out of the water yeah. that's when the the beam of light hits him oh right and yeah i i think that's probably right because it almost looks like he's got water dripping from yeah. his uh from him so that i think you're exactly right with the timing on that um uh i'll just note here what laura uh, Hurtado mentioned as well. She said that um, on in March of 1875, Kessler mentioned this panorama being used. It said it was a small panorama that showed scenes from the Garden of Eden to Joseph receiving the plates from Angel Moroni. And on that date, um, Kessler, Bishop Kessler, secured materials and pipes to construct an Indian baptismal font. And he he used he just loaded it with water from the spring, and he said he had no problem filling the font, and he said many were baptized at that time. So I just oh. think that's an interesting part of our story uh, of Indian and pioneer or settler relations that we don't often talk about. I also like that he has palm trees, so he's definitely showing it's a Middle East setting. It's not North America. He's distinguishing. Right. Very good. Very good comment. Okay, this is the one we want to talk about a little bit. Okay, yep. so. Um, this is a crucifixion scene, and um, as, as you have mentioned in a previous chat, um, Latter-day Saints uh, used to be a little bit more uh, accepting or promoting of crucifixion scenes, and in fact, it, a, a long time ago, used to have pictures of Christ in the chapel, um, and at some point went away from that, uh, probably 1950s, 1960s. And uh, um, so this is interesting to see this crucifixion scene um, at the top there, it, you have um, I-N-R-I, which stands for 
uh, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. I won't try to do the Latin <laughs> that that uh, reflects. Um, anyway, so this is Christ um, showing that he's dying for us. Um, it's hopeful, if you will, in the sense of um, a, a, a scene of hope of, of, of him dying for us, but it's also kind of bleak um, in, in, a, in another sense because he's shown all by himself. Um, it's kind of a, a dreary background, um, perhaps suggesting the, uh, the sadness of the scene. So Steve, why don't you take over? What, do you, what are your thoughts? Well, or again, the beam of light is very interesting to me. And I'm just wondering if anybody's tried to surmise what direction he, the artist is intending this beam of light to be coming from, mm -hmm. uh, if there's any significance in that. And uh, yeah, I just, I think um, it's a lot of interesting stuff going on here. It, very traditional looking crucifixion. I think the significance, of course, is that here we have a Mormon uh, story, a story being told by members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and having a very Christian Catholic, if you will, yeah. uh, scene. Yes. In fact, uh, I'll just add to um, uh, John Hilton has uh, done a book on uh, the crucifixion and Gay Strathern and others have said that in perhaps our um desire to be a little more puritan or a little more sparse in our artwork in in churches we've 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 uh, left behind some important christian iconography and uh, we ought to be thinking about um what how comfortable we are with images of crucifixion not in the sense of glorifying that event but in the sense of remembering the sacrifice and so so it's an interest you know early church leaders for example had crucifixes on their um on their their bibles and their journals and so forth and so eventually um the latter-day saints kind of said okay let's not uh depict crosses as much as as we do yeah so this book uh, banishing the cross i talked about um, from John Whitmer books, one of the first books I got actually um, when I started this channel. And uh, it's a very fascinating book because it does talk about um, many, many of Brigham, Brigham, Brigham Young, some of Brigham Young's wives, his daughters wore crosses and photographs. There, were, um, the, the, there was a, a doctrine and in, in covenants in 1852 made in England that had uh, crosses on it. Um, so it was not a foreign concept uh, to um, to the early days of the church. And really, like you said, it wasn't really until David Oak McCain in the 1950s that that all kind of changed. And so as an evangelical, you know, I come from a Dutch reform background and um, they were kind of, pure, like you said, puritanical. Um, they kind of were uh, shied away from the cross as well. Um, so I think what I think happened, if you don't mind uh, just me giving my little spiel here, um, in the 1950s, David O. McKay, um, and I read the biography, it's really great. Like, uh, do you know the author's name? By it's a yes, Greg Prince. That's right, Greg Prince. Yes, um, I've checked that out of the library about 15 years ago and read it. And basically, David O. McKay, um, of course, hey, shave off the beards, guys. Uh, let's we want to fit in with 1950s Protestant America. Um, that was the Protestant America mainline was at its nadar, uh, at its peak in the 1950s, and one of its leaders was Norman Vincent Peale who was well regarded and actually comes from a Dutch reformed background um, and uh, or reformed actually I don't know if he's Dutch and uh, and so he was very anti-Catholic and he was the one the main critic of JFK should not be president because he's Catholic so I think what was happening was as the 
the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints was trying to integrate itself into the wider culture, they adopted 1950s Protestantism. And I think he took it a step further by saying, let's just get rid of the cross because it's too Catholic. And even though he was very good friends with the bishop, the, 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 the Catholic bishop, they would actually play poker with each other, actually. <laughs> they were good friends. Um, but, uh, but, but apparently he had a little bit of an anti-Catholic bias. Uh, that's just my opinion, but I think that's, that's what's, what's happened. And as a, a Christian and as an evangelical, I just, I'd love to see you guys re-embrace the cross. Yes, and I, I think that we are having, um, so I, I'm just going to say this. I'm presenting this as a neutral historian, not as a proponent or advocate for any particular view. But what I'm saying is I see these uh, tides uh, that kind of shift or go from one way to the other. And I notice that, and, and this is not a, a huge secret, but we're going to have a renewed emphasis on Easter um, this coming, you know, 2023. And there'll be some, some nice um, uh, expressions of that in our church magazines and other things. So, uh, and, and we're coming out with a great book by Eric Huntsman and Trevin Hatch uh, that is called Greater Love Hath No Man. So there's going to be a lot of things that are really classical art to say, let's embrace Easter. Let's think about this whole season. That's just not one day. It's not about the Easter eggs. It's about, you know, the risen Christ and our affirmation of the um, the life, suffering, and uh, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, that really brings us hope for the afterlife. Um, so all these are important affirmations. I think that we, again, without, I don't want to be critical. I think that we have affirmed Christ, but we've kind of gotten away from crucif cru the crucified Christ. We've kind of set, celebrated so much the living Christ that some of these other images that are also important religious icons kind of kind of taken the back seat so i will we'll, we'll see how things go in the next uh, few years 10 years again not trying to be an advocate for one way or the other but just identifying that sometimes we shift one way or the other and eventually the pendulum starts to swing back a different way and, and we'll see how things go absolutely well let's check out the next one okay great so this one is christ uh visit uh um, identifying his disciples, calling his disciples in the new world. And what's interesting about this is um, there is a pyramid in the background, yeah. you know, kind of an Egyptian kind of thing, um, probably suggesting the Mesoamerican uh, pyramids. Um, and uh, you've got these very bearded European looking um, folks um, and you have 12 of them. And uh, so they're sort, sort of, he's, he's calling his church, he's establishing his church, he's standing on a rock, you know, he's, the, he's, he's building, building upon this rock uh, in, in the new world. And so uh, very much affirming the biblical view of Christ as some, someone who organizes councils or quorums and, 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 and empowers them to do his work. Um, and then and then turns them loose to to establish the church. So I think that's an interesting painting. Anything yeah, I love that add? pyramid. That's cool. <laughs> yeah. And then th we have this one. And I um I I would note here this is uh, I believe this is Mormon receiving the plates from uh, Moron uh, sorry Mor Moroni receiving the plates from Mormon. I got that oh. backwards. And uh, this is the, definitely Camora. And you've got a cave there. And you've got uh, fighting in the background, um, but this is not burying the plates. Um, this is at, the, at least not the final. Oh, sure, yeah, right. Um, and uh, because he wanders. He wanders, uh, yeah. And so I just think that's an interesting depiction. Now, 
uh, again, going back to, I mean, we can kind of critique the art, but it's very Roman looking art. You know, you've got these metal, you know, shoulder pads, breastplates and a helmet with a kind of, I don't know, almost looked like a, a Phoenix kind of thing on the top of oh. that. Arnold Freiberg did did similar stuff with his yeah, too. Yes, so I just I just think it's interesting to show that. And um, uh, the the thing you would add, I guess, to this is that that uh, there's a promise that there'll be a future uh, restoration of these words, and so that gives them hope beyond the battle. Which we'll look at in the next one, and this is the final one: Moroni giving the plates to Joseph Smith. So we have the same person as a resurrected being um, giving Joseph. The plates so that he can translate them and so that this message can be made available to the world and particularly mentioned to the Lamanites or these Native American tribes as the Latter-day Saints uh, viewed them. And so they they wanted the, the they they definitely wanted um, the, the 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 Indians, the Shoshone, the Ute and Paiute and Goshute and Navajo um, and many other tribes to join with them. Um, uh, obviously, they had some baptisms, some uh, uh, resistance, if you will, um, and some people were just indifferent to the message. But um, I, I, uh, let's let's have, hear any comments you have on this, and then I want to jump into a few. Uh, I guess you'd call them success stories, if if you will. Sure, sure. Um, it uh, Joseph Smith looks a little old. He's uh, <laughs> older yes. than he would have been. Um, it definitely looks like Hale Kimura, New York. Uh, um, the description of Moroni, it seems pretty accurate as what how Joseph would describe them. Um, uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's an interesting image. I, I, I'm, I'm fascinated by it. Yeah, very good. And uh, I believe if I'm not mistaken, this was this same scene was recreated for the Mormon panorama. Um, but uh, so painted very similarly, but I believe if I'm not mistaken, I have to look this up. Uh, I believe that that image was lost. Um, so, so this okay. is an interesting uh, depiction of something that we, we don't have otherwise. So, uh, so I just wanted to mention kind of wrapping up this particular segment um, that uh, George Hill um, was one of the missionaries who used the uh, panorama to teach uh, the Shoshone um, the gospel. And here's being shown baptizing and confirming um, Chief Sagwich, um, who is one of the, the Shoshone chiefs who survived the, the Bear River Massacre. And uh, along with 101 other Shoshone uh, tribal members was baptized near Corinne, Utah. Um, at, at the Bear River, um, uh, where, you know, which is really the lifeblood of, of the Shoshone people. They would travel up and down the, the, the Bear River uh, into Idaho, um, as, you know, uh, uh, over, over near um, Malad, um, Tremonton, you know, kind of, there's a long uh, swath there where they would, they would, and, and I would just add here that here's a picture of them, um, uh, being they, they were sealed, um, Sagwich and his wife. Um, there's a question of which wife was shown there. He, he was multi, married to multiple wives. But um, my friend Darren Perry has talked about this, um, his ancestor. He is a descendant of Sagwich and um, appreciates uh, that, that he was part of the church. 
They later moved to uh, the Malad area in Idaho and had a large farm, 1,700 acres, called Washakie after the Shoshone chief who lived in Wyoming, who was also baptized. And so, so there, were, there were a lot of interesting things going on with the Shoshone people. So um, George Hill said that um, 800 um, were, were baptized uh, over a, about a five-year period. And so, 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 th so there were some positive interactions along with the negative ones. We have to call out and, and say there were, there were massacres. There were, they were definitely pressured to leave lands. Um, I would say of the Shoshone, the Northwestern band of the Shoshone never did move to a reservation. They still own land. They are members of the community. They were never, they were, they never did um, uh, go the same path as a lot of our Indian tribes in the U.S. So it's an, kind of an interesting story. Mm -hmm. uh, and then, and then finally, just wrap up with this one. Uh, so this Huntington or Lamanite panorama passed to fellow missionary George Washington Hill, whose descendants donated to churches to museum. So that's why we have what we have. And here's another view, and this is kind of a cool one. I'll just uh, end with this one, at least on this portion, because these. So uh, you'll see Laura Hurtado um, off to my left. I think I forget how this is all oriented. Um, and, um, and then you see uh, uh, Scott Christensen, who's written extensively on the, he's in the back row with a white shirt, um, who's written extensively on the Shoshone uh, conversions. And there's me on the back. And then in front is a descendant of uh, Dimmick Huntington. His name is Bob Freeman. And then you've got Darren Perry, who is uh, wearing the cool uh, medallion around his neck. And he is the descendant of Darren, uh, of uh, Chief Sagwich, and then his wife, Melody. So there, that is a cool picture showing the, the scroll. And, and we look forward to having it displayed. Um, there's been discussions uh, with the church about where to display it. And um, I, nothing has been decided, but I wouldn't be surprised if it, if, if it ends up in the Shoshone interpretive center in idaho at least on display at some point that is uh, but that's that's only a discussion at this point so we'll see what happens well why don't you exit out of the uh okay of the screen right now and just sure. yeah, so folks i i actually met darren perry at the mormon history association um i would invite you to watch the um gospel tangents interview series that he did with uh rick bennett uh where he talks about the bear river uh, massacre it's very insightful and interesting um and uh Oh, that was really cool, dude. <laughs> Thank you, Steve. <laughs> Thank you for having me on because, um, you know, again, this is kind of a, a quirky side hobby. And it I found myself just fascinated by this history and finding Darren Perry at MHA. That, that was a Mormon History Association meeting where I first met him. And Barbara Brown, our, our common friend, said, you need to meet him you because you're telling this story and so we were just excited because we knew that that likely because of this panorama uh we our family uh you know his family joined the church and um, you know for sure because of the missionaries that we were just talking about um and so so uh, anyway that that kind of this kind of connected us in a way that was a, a cool cultural artifact of the of the past yes yeah, so that it's just mind-blowing to think that just by you know us having a little conversation that we we may have identified and and pushed back the date of our earliest extant piece to now to 1871 you had made reference to me off camera that you actually said that there's reference made 
circa 1871 to this panorama? Did you, did you say that? Oh, yes, it was 1875 is, uh, is uh, the reference um, that we have to Bishop Kessler um, uh, using this. And um, he said, went uh, March 15th, 1875, went to D.B. Huntington's to select a place for the baptizing of the Lamanites, which he wants near his dwelling. There seems to be quite a stir amongst the Lamanites. And then uh, it specifically refers to this, uh, says a small panorama got up by D.D. Huntington was exhibited commencing with Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden with several interesting circumstances or incidences which transpired from then until the time that the angel Moroni delivered the plates unto Joseph Smith. Each picture was explained unto them. They were very much interested. President Young gave them much, gave them very timely and good counsel. And then it does mention uh, building the uh, baptismal font and baptizing quite a few uh, of the Indians there, which were called the remnants of Jacob, you know, meaning referring to Israel. Yeah. Very fascinating. Very interesting. You know, I also want to encourage people to watch my interview with Thomas Murphy, where he kind of talks about uh, um, just, just the, the history of interpretations of the Book of Mormon and a current situation with how we deal with Native Americans today. I think that would be a, a good uh, place, to, a good interview to check out as well. Um, man, I really thoroughly uh, just think this is so cool that we're able to have this conversation. Um, and it's just a real pl pleasure to, and a privilege to be able to have access to like even something that nobody's really seen. It was just published in this publication, but wasn't too terribly widespread. So most people haven't seen these images for the first time. Now they're seeing it on, on this program. Um, I just think that's really awesome, dude. Well, yeah, I'm glad, glad that you invited me on. I, it was, as we talked, this wasn't even on our radar when we first talked about what to, to chat about. And then uh, when, you, you, when you asked me about what my interests were, I said, Oh, there's this really cool thing that we ought to talk about. <laughs> and, and, and after we got talking about that, oh, this is actually really relevant to our early Latter-day Saint movement because it involves all our, all our early, uh, you know, combined members and because it, it unites the Book of Mormon story with the Bible story. It's also relevant because we have our evangelical uh, connection and we want to we want to, you know, rejoice in Christ, if you will, yeah. and uh, share that common bond, right? So. Yeah, I mean, this is, yeah, so I, I before we, we uh, end this, uh, I just, you had, you had mentioned to me that uh, there's going to be a church history symposium coming up. Oh, yeah. Maybe we'll talk about that. Yeah, fantastic. Happy to share that. So uh, March 10th and 11th, uh, we're going to have a church history symposium. So the topic is religious liberty. And so it's kind of the intersection of Latter-day Saints with religious liberty. So there'll be a lot of good material at the BYU Conference Center on Thursday. We have Sarah, um, well, she goes by Sally, Sally Gordon, who's a professor from uh, uh, University of Pennsylvania. And, uh, and she will be talking uh, about that topic. And then we also have Elder Garrett Gong speaking on Friday at the church office building auditorium. Most likely, there's a, there's a chance that might lo lo location might change, but that's the that's what's keyed in right now. So anyway, those two are keynote speakers. But then you've got a range of speakers. They're talking about things like um, let's talk about the Missouri um, War and the extermination order and what Lilburn Boggs was like. Let's talk about um, you know when you're in when you're in Nazi Germany. 
and you have you know church leaders pressuring you to follow the the political party that's in in party uh, you know what what is that what does that mean to sustain your honor and sustain the law when you're dealing with uh you know you know leaders who are in kind of a bad way so so what do you what do you what do you do so there'll be a lot of great uh conversations uh we have uh Governor Mike Levitt, former governor. We've got, um, um, let's see, Sharon Eubank, who's uh, in Latter-day Saint Charities. Uh, I'm forgetting some Elder Lance Wickman, who's been involved in the uh, church's discussion of LGBT uh, rights and church things. So, so there'll be very interesting material there at that the symposium. And um, I, if anybody wants to, if you, if this is up in time, they're welcome to go to rsc.byu.edu. Um, and I'm just bringing up the, the, the definite link. And so you go to that page, rsc.byu.edu and click on the conferences page, and that will get you into the registration for the church history symposium. So hopefully that's a, a benefit. It's free. Um, if you want to buy a lunch, you can buy a lunch, but uh, otherwise just go ahead and head register on that. If this comes out in time for, for you to register. Yeah, yeah. So I'll provide a link in the description to that as well, folks. Uh, Devin, um, it's really awesome you came on. I think I've said awesome like five times in this interview. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, do you just have any, any final words you'd like to share with my audience? You know, history matters. I love it. Um, learn all you can. Have fun with it. Uh, you know whether you talk with people, whether you're engaged with text, um, whether you're you you're, you're a, an amateur or a hardcore historian, just learn all you can. It informs the that the past informs the present, and affects the future. So when you are involved in history, in a meaningful way, and I say that in all areas, I'm I'm particularly interested in our racial history in the US. Um, but, but there are so many areas of history that once you dive in, you realize things are complicated and uh, make life a little more complicated by <laughs> studying history because when you do so, um, you will understand the shades and the nuances and you'll be a more sympathetic, empathetic, kind person. Yep. So yeah, amen, brother. All right, well, thanks so much for coming on, uh, Devin. I really appreciate it. You're welcome. Thank you, Steve. So I just want to remind my audience to like and subscribe and don't forget to hit the like uh, button and also the notification button to be informed when a new uh, video comes out. Uh, just a reminder, uh, we are on Apple, uh, Google, and uh, a couple other podcast formats and we are expanding. Also, for those of you who would like to financially support the channel, um, you can always also support me on Patreon as well. So thanks again for coming on, Devin, and everybody, you have yourself a great day. <laughs>